Welcome to Through the Line, the Agency Squared podcast with me, Andy Barjuri. In this episode, I'm talking with Emmanuel Probst, a leading academic, market researcher and author. And we're talking about why and how brands need to go on a quest for creating meaning around their brands, around their products, rather than simply trying to sell more stuff. I hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, Emmanuel. How are you today? Good morning, Andy. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm well. How are you? I am really good. Really, really good. I say good morning because for you, I think it is the morning. It is. Um, but I'm on the other side of the planet, so it's getting on for the end of the day for me. Um, <laughs> but thank you. I think I guess you may have got up a little bit earlier to meet me today, so I'm really pleased you're here. Oh, anytime. <laughs> so so what i wanted to talk to you about today is uh, the quest for meaning for brands which i know is a, is the topic of a book a fantastic book you've just written called brand hacks but before we get into into all of that why don't you just tell us a bit about who you are and what you're up to and i guess where you've got to or how you've got to where you are today yeah thank you andy um as you can tell from my voice, I actually lived in the UK for six years and I graduated in Greenwich for my MBA and then um, Nottingham for my doctorate in consumer psychology. And I've been in the market research industry for over 15 years now. Um, I work for Kantar, which is obviously a, a large market research firm, and I specialize in advertising effectiveness whereby I help clients, advertisers, optimize the impact of their advertising. And I also teach at UCLA, um, which is the University of California at Los Angeles. And I, I write on the side, not only the book, but articles as well. So how did I get there? It's um, back in 2004, and I'm dating myself. When I was reading for my MBA, um, I needed a job and I ended up in the market research industry, honestly, okay. very randomly. And I loved how the industry was so curious about consumers, understand why people do what they do. And that's the quest right here. And <laughs> I got on this quest myself. Um, what is that? Uh, over 15 years ago now and uh, that's how I got here today. Perfect I think you have to be curious to want to pursue a career in market research um, but I would also say that despite your time in the UK I don't think you're from the UK I think you've got a slightly different accent. You're um, right. So <laughs> <laughs> You're a very international well-traveled uh, market researcher. Indeed thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks thanks for coming on the show i was really pre pleased to to come across you and to come across your book and i think it's i think it's an interesting time to explore meaning uh, in the context of brands because from from my point of view it seems particularly with uh, i guess the millennial generation that there is um, a kind of disconnect between brand and the importance of brand to an audience that has other priorities that perhaps doesn't have the same doesn't seem the same see the same cachet in the brand that uh, the, the, their forerunners have 
Um, is, is it kind of does that resonate? Do you see that as well? Do you see a shift in the market? Do you see I, I do. a brand changing? Yeah, I do. I think boomers and earlier generations, obviously, there was a strong emphasis on material goods and on consumption. In my experience, millennials and Gen Z, younger generations, are don't get me wrong, they're they're big consumers that just don't like to really admit it. So back to your question on brands, I think there is room for brands, but brands that indeed are more meaningful and more useful to them, if you will, as opposed to wasteful consumption and branding for the sake of it as um, we sold to prior generations. Mm, I think I think that's absolutely right, and and I, th- I think you see some brands that are perhaps providing more of a utility that are doing particularly well. And I think Airbnb is a, a reference you point out a few times in, in throughout the book as a brand that kind of engages with lots of different market um, segments, but hasn't kind of i don't know it doesn't really feel like it's an an aspirational brand it's a brand that feels as though it's a luxury brand and yet it really resonates with a with a wide demographic i think that's a great example airbnb is not a traditional brand in that way that um you you will not necessarily have a airbnb sticker on your laptop um it's a more subtle positioning. What I mean by this is Airbnb is a good example of a meaningful brand. That is, what does the brand enable me to do? Who does the brand enable me to become? Airbnb is the brand that it's not so much about the accommodation. That's fine. They do this. But Marriott does this and Hilton does this and Accord does this. What Airbnb enables me to do is to discover the world and to access other culture. Um, um, It's all about discovery and adventure. And Airbnb is meaningful for that reason. Because Mm. with Hilton, um, I stay at a hotel. With Airbnb, I'm an adventurer and I discover the world. That's exactly right. It's, it's it's two different experiences, isn't it? It's, I have access to a room or I have access to adventure and experience. Precisely. Yeah. Okay. So, so what is it do you think that has, what's the driving force behind this shift? Why do people, why are consumers more concerned with meaning? Yeah, I think we managed to overload consumers with advertising and brands and products and services. And social media is overwhelming. Uh, Checking your phone about 83 times a day, receive 43,000 pictures posted on Instagram every day. People engage 11, 12 hours a day with technology and media in general. And frankly, I think there is really an overload of media here because there are only so many products you can buy and so many brands you can be exposed to. So that's exactly the point of the book is to say, let's take a step back because more advertising and more products no longer translate in more sales. 
and certainly not in consumer loyalty. So let's mm. take a step back and understand what people want to achieve. And what people want is certainly not more products or more brands. It's really what's meaningful to me, what is going to make an impact in my personal life and in the world around me. From there, let's build brands and products that contribute to fulfilling this quest. Mm, okay. I, you know, sometimes I think, and I totally agree with you in terms of that feeling of overwhelm, you know, the temptation to check your smartphone is ever present, isn't it? Just in case there's a tweet that mentions you or a, a text <laughs> or a WhatsApp or something, there's kind of so much information coming at us. And I think you're right. We are definitely at that point of overwhelm. Um, 81 times per day on your phone, I think probably feels like it's it's higher than that. At least my wife would say it's the case for me. Um, but <laughs> I think what's what's really interesting there is that people, because they're overwhelmed, then they're looking for something else. Then they're 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 kind of blind to the traditional brand messages and advertising that we've kind of been doing for the last ten, twenty, thirty, forty odd years. And now it's time to try something new. And that's kind of the the what your book's all about, isn't it? It's time to Absolutely. look at different ways to engage that doesn't involve that traditional brand advertising route. Um, You're right. Yeah. 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 Okay. So why don't you give us some examples of how brands are achieving that meaningfulness? What are the, what, which brands are doing this really well? Who can we learn from? Yeah, I think um, Airbnb is a good example. Another example um, in the B2B world would be WeWork. And again, traditionally, you could rent office space. And WeWork provides you with, with office space when you're a startup or when you're a small independent business. And that's fine, but WeWork has not invented office space, we just was in that market well before and many other um, options. What WeWork is providing you today is with literally a lifestyle that is, of course, you have an office space, but you have a community. Um, you access a community, an opportunity to connect with people like you, an opportunity to do something together. Uh, and WeWork is now expanding in a ecosystem brand whereby they'll provide you with a place to live. They'll provide you here in the United States, potentially with some healthcare solutions. Now, this is very pervasive because we work is now no longer just your office, but also supports you with many other aspects of your life. And the reason why this is important is because we worked connects me to others, people around me, uh, people like myself. We work engages me in a community. So I think that's another example of a brand that fulfills a very, very functional need. Nothing new here. Just like Airbnb, you need to sleep in a room. You need to have a desk to work on. Those are functional benefits. They've been around for years and years. Mm. What's new is the ability to connect to a community. 
Uh, and I think what's interesting with WeWork as well, I didn't know they were eventually moving into healthcare, but I guess that makes perfect sense because obviously WeWork and there's WeLive. So whatever the WeHealth brand is going to be, that's a really interesting extension for that brand. Uh, but I think what's really interesting there is they're, they're, I think, charging a premium as well. So it's a premium product. So they've shifted the market and they've increased the uh the, the cost there as well without having any kind of um, damaging impact on their brand. So so they're creating that meaning and charging a premium for it. And, you know, that's a good point. And we should talk a little bit about charging a premium. When brands compete on functional attributes, in my opinion, that's a race to the bottom. So we'll go back to the hotel room example. You know, sure, you can have free coffee and free Wi-Fi and, uh, and then what? Those are just functional attributes, the square footage and all those aspects. Those are not key differentiators for brands because you will always find a competitor that's going to offer slightly more functional benefits and eventually at a slightly lower price. That's a risk to the bottom. Mm. That also does not create loyalty you're not likely to stay at Hilton rather than Marriott because you like the pillow better or you like the chair at the desk better. Those are just functional attributes. What drives a premium and what drives loyalty is indeed the meaning we attach to things. It's indeed the emotional benefit that we attach to brands. That is what makes consumers likely to pay a little bit more. Now, don't get me wrong. People are not going to pay double to be at rework versus reaches, but you can charge a reasonable premium here to give people access to a community and meaning. And also that is what makes them a lot less likely to switch to competitors' products. I think that um, WeWork and Regis there, those two brands you mentioned, are great examples of a brand that has kind of tapped into that need for community and meaning around a functional product versus one that hasn't. Um, I think that's a, that's a very good comparison, those two products. Yeah, thank you. Okay. So, so what I like about the book is that littered throughout the book are ideas that you can take from this idea of this quest for meaning, but not just apply those to big brands. There's there's ideas and suggestions for any kind of company size to use. So if you're, you know, um, mom and pop shop, for example, you can still take some ideas out of this that you can apply to your small brand. Or if you're an enormous brand, there's some stuff in here as well. So it's great you've managed to kind of bridge the gap between the different ends of the the spectrum there. Thank you, Andy. So what you said, and um, it's an important point of the book, is we have examples of big brands, but also much smaller brands in this book. And that was so important to me. As professionals, I'm sure many of our listeners can relate. We often work for big agencies. And if you work for publicists or WPP or Densu or Bain or KPMG, when you work for those big firms, you usually work with big clients. And don't get me wrong, that's very compelling. But what I wanted to achieve through this book is to help the little guys, the people who don't have $20 million to spend on advertising. In fact, the people who don't sometimes have even £20,000 a year to spend on marketing and advertising. 
And the point of the book is to say there is so much you can do with on a shoestring budget to make your brand more meaningful, more personal to mm. consumers. What are the some of the? I mean, because I guess people have been reading the book. Are you seeing people that? At least I hope they. I'm sure that they are. It's an excellent book. Mm-hmm. But are mm-hmm. you seeing? Are you getting any kind of pushback? Are you hearing successful stories that people have read the book and said, oh, you know, Annual, we, we saw that, we read that, we loved it, and we did this because of it? Because I imagine that would be quite rewarding. It feels very rewarding. I see this with small local businesses here. For example, there is a, a tailor, um, so custom clothing shop here in Los Angeles, that's very engaged with the book and leverage many of the tips that are in the book to, again, deliver a more personal experience. Clothing, by the way, just like most categories, is extremely competitive. Think about it yourself. You have so many options when you want to buy a shirt or or a sports jacket. So they use many of those tips to make that experience more personal and for people to really relate to their brand. So to your point, that's really rewarding. But the, the best feedback I get on the book, um, the feedback that is most meaningful to me, in fact, is people say, unlike other marketing books where we look at consumers top to bottom, if you will, Many marketing books are almost condescending. What I mean by this is many marketing books start from the standpoint of the marketer saying, this is how we're going to sell more. <clears throat> Excuse me. This book takes a step back, turns the tables and say, well, let's see what consumers want to achieve first. And then we'll try to build brands and marketing strategies to fulfill that. But it's really a book about the consumer. It's not a, a book about the um, experienced marketer, if you will. No, it's a book that I think anybody can pick up and and understand and take some stuff away from, whether you're an experienced marketeer with a big brand or whether you're a, 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 the owner of a tailor shop, for example. Um, so I totally get that. And I think it's, it's interesting because, you know, when you, when you start out in your career in marketing or you do your marketing education, the one thing you learn is really that – as marketeers, we are the we are the customers' champions within our organisations and within our brands. So, starting off with a viewpoint that let's find out what our customers want to achieve first. Oh, and by the way, that's probably changed when we last looked at them because they're on that they've got more of a desire for meaning. They've got different expectations of a brand experience from what they might have had five years ago, and certainly. As we get into the millennials, for example, that again, that experience is or their needs and wants are changing. But to use this as a way to, you know, take that step back and look at our customers in the first instance really feels like something perhaps we might be missing in um, in brand marketing for a while. Indeed, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and and I guess as a as a market researcher, uh, that's I guess the core of what you're trying to do is it's to understand what what it is that the customer wants and how can we then map that onto what we can deliver as a business. You're right. And I think there is a good news here for our listeners is as marketers, we often try to reinvent the wheel 
and in a way we, we should try to reinvent the wheel. But what's important about these meanings, those personal, social, cultural meanings that consumers are trying to fulfill, is they're very consistent over time. And that's really the difference between a fad, a trend, and a meaning. What I mean by this is a fad is something that never lasts. So a diet, for example, most diets are fads because you don't want to eat broccoli for the rest of your life. <laughs> Not right? for every meal. <laughs> uh, and a trend, in contrast, is something that is going to last longer, five, six, seven years, and is likely to influence the market. Now, as marketers, we really tend to, we tend to jump the gun and uh, work on fads and work on these trends. The good news with meaning is they're consistent over time, whereby people have been trying to achieve these meanings 10 years, 15 years ago, and will likely try to fulfill the same meanings for the next 10 or 15 years. So if you build a brand on meaning, you also build a marketing strategy that is a lot more consistent and a lot more sustainable as opposed to jumping on the, onto the next slide. That, that's really interesting because I think as an industry, as the kind of pace um, has changed with the advent of more and more technology. We tend to jump around a lot more. We plan for shorter time frames, shorter cycles, and we jump on those fads and trends, particularly in the world of social media. And I think that's been to the detriment of long-term brand building. And it feels like this is the an opportunity or almost a wake-up call to say to the brand owners, let's look at something other than the latest trend here. Let's look at what is the meaning that our customers are looking for. Um, but I think you need to be a brave marketer to to have that kind of long-term perspective in what you're trying to achieve because you might not have long enough enrolled to uh, deliver that. And here, Andy, I, I, I just could not agree more. There is an obsession with lower funnel metrics, so with very tactical um marketing actions such as let's drive traffic this weekend yeah and that's what we see on on social media with um, brands buying social media ads display ads and trying to drive clicks basically and sometimes very very shallow performance indicators such as the number of followers and the number of likes and don't get me wrong I do understand the pressure marketers are facing whereby they need immediate results and they need to demonstrate return on investment to their bosses and to their board. I get that part and by no means am I saying that we should stop doing this. Those lower funnel ads to drive traffic or lower funnel tactics, they're completely fine. My point, however, and in line with what you were saying, Andy, is they are not a standalone. These are tactics, not strategies. And I see this here on the West Coast in the United States, where we have many clients that are DTC brands, direct to yep. consumers. And these brands are very compelling because they are built on data and they are built on micro segmentation and 
artificial intelligence and all those fun technologies and methodologies that we like to talk about. The shortcoming, however, is when you deploy those marketing tactics, you're not building a brand. And many of our clients today are concerned with this uh, not being differentiated, not being sustainable. And that's when we go back to meaning. That's when we go back to building something that is longer lasting than a few clicks mm, and a few absolutely. likes. We're, we're on absolutely the same page here, <laughs> I could tell you that. Because I think I've seen over the last, I don't know, five years or more, a gradual shift towards much more performance-based metrics and, and much less brand-driven metrics when it comes to evaluation of the success of any kind of marketing strategy. You know, it is much more about you know, whatever that is, whether it's leads in a pipeline, bums on seats, clicks on links or whatever it is, and much less about the long-term brand health, I suppose. Um, so we're certainly on the same page. And, and I'm with you, and that's because of a number of factors. Well, social media made this possible because those performance-based metrics are readily available. Number two, there is indeed a pressure, and rightly so, by the way, there is a pressure from the board to make marketing accountable for mm. the money they spend, and that makes sense. But, you know, also... I think it's because those metrics are so easy to understand. And that is why they're appealing to marketers at all levels and to investors is because it's so easy to understand um, CPAs and cost per clicks and number of likes and number of followers. And we need to do a better job as marketers to educate, if you will, non-marketers, non-market researchers about the value of the brand assets, um, the upper funnel metrics. And that also has to do with what key performance indicators we use and importantly, how do we explain this yeah, to absolutely. investors? Absolutely. Let's go back a bit, if we may, and let's just unpack a bit here the personal social and cultural meanings when it comes to uh, the brand. So what are you talking about there where you're talking about personal and social and cultural in the, in the application of creating meaning? Yeah, there are 10 key meanings that I look at in the book that people, consumers, try to fulfill. And these meanings are identified in three different categories personal, social, cultural meaning. So personal meaning is something you do for yourself. Um, an experience of a brand that does well at fulfilling personal meaning, there is a campaign in the tube in London for Paco Rabanne fragrances. And you see these ads with this product, with this fragrance that says, crazy me, a erotic, a successful me, and so on and so forth. So personal meaning is what is the brand going to do to contribute to myself? Social meaning has to do with social interactions. How do we build meanings with people around us? What are the brands that are going to facilitate this for me? And we work was a good example of this. It gives me access to a community, a community is making sense of the world with people 
like me, people around me. And a cultural meaning, now the concept of culture is fuzzy, right? And culture has to do with your beliefs and customs and the arts and, uh, again, a, a bit of a fuzzy concept. But cultural meaning in branding is Airbnb. Here's a good example. Another example will be Nike that takes a political stance mm. in a way. And the brand signals, how can I contribute to change the world? And if you're on board with the way I want to change the world, then you're my customer. If you're not, that's fine too. You're not as a brand trying to be everything to everyone. But that's where Nike is more than sneakers and uh, sweatpants. That's a brand that is taking a stance yes, on the Nike's world. Yes, Nike is a great example, actually. Um, is it Colin Colin Kaepernick was the, I think that's how you say it. He's the yeah. uh, American football player, NFL player, if you're listening in the US. And didn't he object to, or he was um, making a stance around racism in football and can not quite got the story there, but, but Nike jumped on that and worked with it really yeah. well. You're right. And you summarized the story very well. Um, Nike harnessed his power, if you will, whereby he was taking a strong political sense, stance, I'm sorry. And that's how he got to advertise for Nike. Now, some people will think, well, that could be a bad move because people who disagree with this political stance will not buy Nike. And I don't think that's an issue simply because the people who were rejecting Nike, they will keep rejecting Nike anyway. They're not going to buy Nike today any more than, than they did before. Your core rejectors are always going mm, to absolutely. reject the brand. And for, yeah, and for a brand like Nike, Nike doesn't have a large market share in any of the categories they play in. What I mean by this is they are 15, 20, maybe 25% in all those categories. But unlike Gillette in shaving, that has a 60, 65% market share in the US, Nike doesn't own any of those markets anyway. So the outcome is people who were not on board with Nike's cultural and political views well, they'll still reject the brand. However, people who are on the fence, people who are looking for something more meaningful, they're likely to join the brand. And last but not least, the core customers of Nike, the ones that have always supported the brands, are more likely to engage and will engage with Nike in a deeper fashion and in a more meaningful fashion than there were before. I think that makes sense. You know, as you say, there will always be those um, almost brand detractors, I suppose, those that aren't on board, but those that are already advocates, well, it will only strengthen your relationship with them by taking a, a stance and showing that you've got more to you than just making product, shipping product. Yeah. Okay. Indeed. Yeah. I get that with the cultural side there. And I think with the social side, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, with the advent of social media, suddenly we all become our own little media machines and we're always trying to show off our best face online. So, you know, the Instagram posts where you're on the beach looking great and this is the kind of image you want to portray. Mm -hmm. And I think that that 
that's an interesting one, isn't it? That social side at the moment in terms of the images we're all trying to portray of ourselves. And you're right. And I feel that's where a newer generation of consumers is really not that different from uh, baby boomers. Here's my point. Of course, millennials, Gen Z, they love to say they reject brands. And I respectfully disagree. It's just a, a different relationship they have with the brands. So there is a concept in academia called conspicuous consumption. What this means is conspicuous consumption that means you rely on material goods to advertise your wealth. So you're going to wear a nice car, a nice watch, or a nice handbag to signal to your friends, family, and neighbors that you're successful in life. That's a very traditional view of consumption, and that is what made the success of Louis Vuitton and Mercedes and so on and so forth. Now, younger consumers, millennials and Gen Z, argue that they reject this. But I would argue, I would say that social media, in fact, made conspicuous consumption a lot more prominent. And thanks to Instagram, conspicuous consumption is really on steroids. <laughs> and here's why. I agree, by the way. I massively agree because... Um, but it's not uh, it's not consuming a brand. It's consuming an experience. You're not showing off the fact you're wearing a Rolex. You're showing off the fact you've been to 10 countries this year. Exactly. So the brands that are able to provide those experiences, they're taking advantage of this conspicuous consumption. Well, there are two important aspects, three important aspects here. Number one, as you said, it's about advertising your experience. Uh, number two is instead of showing off your car to your five, seven best friends and your neighbor, now you show off your experience to hundreds, thousands, dozens of thousands of people on the internet, on social media. Um, so I think that's what I meant by conspicuous consumption being <laughs> yes. on steroids. And, <laughs> and last but not least, cities uh, are brands also, and of course, hotels and destinations those are also brands in a way. It's just a different type of brand. Yeah, I think you're right. And there is a there is obviously an industry around marketing of destinations, of places. Um, that's absolutely evident when you look at, uh, for example, a great example is Visit Britain. You know, it's all the time trying to uh, sell yeah. the idea that traveling in Britain is a good idea, which it is, of course. Um, but that's certainly... Uh, a brand that I think is more likely to appeal to someone looking for meaning uh, than a traditional product-based brand. You're right. And in marketing, we often talk about experiences and products and destinations as being Instagrammable, something that's going to look good on Instagram. And reflecting on some very traditional British um, destinations and events, um, they're strong brands themselves. I'm thinking about Ascot. I'm thinking about Henley. The experience, of course, is about the horses, about the regatta, and come on, it's also about the pimps. <laughs> I would right? hope so. Uh, <laughs> I love pimps. <laughs> uh, importantly, these days is what's Instagrammable? Because Henley and Ascot 
have to look good on Instagram, not just on TV. Yeah, that's right. I agree with you, and I, and also I agree with you on the on the love of pims as well. So we're we're on a very much of an agreeable conversation today, Emmanuel, which is great. <laughs> um, let's talk about let's talk about the personal side. So you said there, what's a brand going to do to contribute to me? What do you what do you mean by that? How's it going to contribute to me? Yeah, I want to build myself. I want to feel stronger, more empowered. I want to develop my personality. That's what the self has to do with. So it's all the components that make you who you are. And in a way, material possessions are part of this. So the reason why you will buy a nice watch is because you want to feel successful and you want to, of course, you want to advertise your wealth, even though it's not obvious to most people, but it's uh, also because you want to reward yourself for your hard work and you think you're worthy of it. And that's why you're purchasing that watch. That is what personal meaning is about in the context of consumption. Um, in the context of meaning in the book, I look at many examples around happiness and joy, for example, how people seek uh, joy for themselves and joyful moments. Okay. And again, I think that ties into the experience over the possession of something. Again, we got, kind of, I keep feeling like I need to come back to this idea that as consumers, we no longer mm-hmm. feel we have the urge to own things. We just need to have access to them. And I think that's kind of grown out exactly. of this whole sharing economy movement. So things like oh, we've mentioned Airbnb, you know, several times already, and they're a great example of that. But there are other brands that have taken advantage of that like Zipcar, for example is quite good at that in terms of gives you the access to a product and the ability to show that you're driving around in a new car even though it's not really yours um, but you still have the ability to engage with and enjoy the brand attributes of Zipcar. you're right and for at least two reasons indeed consumers have realized that ownership there isn't much derive pleasure from owning if you will and often uh, it's a big liability yeah mm. and a car is a good example because then you have to maintain it and um, insurance and all those liabilities and park it and so on and so forth the other aspect again thanks to social media or because of social media ownership doesn't matter if we go back to instagram what's important is to see you um driving a specific car or in a specific car or at a specific destination, whether you own this dream house or this very nice car you're riding today is not relevant. This does not impact the quality of the picture. This does not impact the following of uh, for your posts. Uh, it has no impact whatsoever. So that's also why I think there is less emphasis on ownership and more emphasis on access. And you summarized it very, very well, Andy, when you said access rather than ownership. These are the key words. Yeah, I think I think that's something that's been coming for a little while. You know, and we've talked a bit there about different um, industries, but another one that that really relates to is the music industry with the advent of things like Spotify. I no longer need to buy a CD or when it comes out or even download a CD because I can just stream it with one f- set monthly fee. I've got access to pretty much all the music I could ever want. 
Um, and I can enjoy that experience without having to go down to HMV or whatever your record store is and buy that. Um, so it's another, another way I think that, um, I suppose tech has disrupted an industry and, and led us down this path where we have the ability to care more about access over ownership. And we have the ability to choose based on experience and meaning rather than availability. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So who do you think um who do you think are examples of brands that haven't quite understood this shift yet and and uh, you know they might be the next blockbuster because they they kind of aren't really aren't really seeming to adapt to this change and this quest for meaning. Yeah. Um so I don't want to name names because I don't want to make people <laughs> feel bad about themselves. <laughs> and uh, my you know I I like to pride myself in doing the opposite. You know, I want to bring optimism and happiness to to people around me <laughs> and to our listeners for sure. Fair enough. And <laughs> that said, uh, I'll address the question at a higher level: Is your brand focused, overly focused on functional attributes, on price, on volume? on pushing, pushing more down the throat of consumers. That's where the problem is. If I'm in shaving, am I trying to add more blades or am I trying to be cheaper? That's an example. Versus is your brand trying to bring more to the table, to connect people to a community, to um, make people feel stronger about themselves? to play a role in the culture around us, in the arts, for example. All these are examples of how to convey meaning, how to build a stronger brand, and how to stay in market um, for for good, if you will. So all the functional attributes Mm. are a race to the bottom. In retail... For example, we see this in the US. I'm sure you have uh, this in the UK too. You cannot compete in retail on assortment. Amazon is always going to win. You can hardly compete on price. Amazon is always going to win. So 200,000 square feet, 400,000 square feet department stores are in very bad shape because they're too big to deliver a personal experience and they're too small to compete with Amazon on price and on assortment. There is a future in retail, but in a smaller Mm. retail environment and in a very personal experience that goes from online to offline. So, gosh, you, you know we're we're in agreement once again there, Manuel, because the uh, the department store uh, sector over here is just a bit of a train wreck at the moment. You know they're struggling, and even the the bigger stores like Arcadia Group's a good example, really struggling to adapt to mm. what consumers are looking for now. And, and maybe that's I've always assumed that was down to uh, the their lack of online strategy, but. The more I'm listening to you and the more I'm reading your book, the more I think that perhaps it's because they there's a fundamental disconnect. They're focused on, uh, as you call them, functional attributes or just product and, and not so much on the experience around there. Whereas 
if I look at the retailers that seem to be doing well, they tend to be blending the two together. So for example, in the UK, you'll know that there's a clothing store called Next. And pretty much in every Next store now, you have a Costa Mm -hmm. coffee shop, so a kind of Starbucks type thing. And they're kind of bringing those two experiences together. So you go in for shopping, you get a coffee and and a muffin, and you carry on doing your shopping. And it's different it's becoming a, a kind of more of an experience than it is uh, a shopping trip almost. I agree. And I'd say that for anyone involved in fast fashion, which is the case for Arcadia, uh, things are only about to get worse because not only do these brands face all these challenges that we just briefly covered, but also a challenge around sustainability, fast fashion, buying um four sets of clothes a year and discarding them at the end of the year is just not sustainable. And consumers are increasingly concerned yes. about the environment and uh, about their carbon footprint and the impact they make on society in general. And de facto, and that's not their fault, if you will, yeah. but these brands really don't help with this. That is a shortcoming of fast fashion. In that regard, it's going to be a very tough market environment for those folks. They face all the traditional challenges of retail versus online with the added challenge of perception around, I'm not doing good for the world around me. I think we could carry on talking for quite some time because it's it's fascinating having this conversation with you. I'm really pleased we've had a chance to connect. But as ever the clock is ticking and I really want to find out um, from you, you know, where, where is it that you look for, for ideas and inspiration aside from um, obviously reading your own material or writing it, who, who is it that inspires you and, mm-hmm. and makes you come up with this, this great thinking? Yeah. Thank you, Andy. That's a great question. Whether you're in market research or in marketing, that's, doesn't really matter. What's important is to be curious and to look at the world around you. What can I learn from um, people I bump into in my life? What can I learn from my environment? What can I learn from those brands around me? And that's why that's an upside of technology. With a smartphone, we always carry a, a pretty powerful camera. So I snap pictures of things and products and experiences and people sometimes all around me constantly. Next, where do you see a pattern? How can you connect all those pictures? How can you connect all these people? What do they have in common? And I think that's where you find meaning and that's how you build a brand that's sustainable. That's not so much about knowing should the display should should the display be red or blue or teal or yellow? That's not really what's important. Those are just trends. Those are just fads. What's important is to walk around the streets of London and see what does the Conrad shop in Marylebone has in common with the Paco Rabanne ad on the tube and has in common with the barber store in Mayfair and has in common with the coffee shop independent coffee shop that's in Greenwich. That's how you find meaning and that's how you find patterns, consistent patterns across brands, across consumers, 
And that's how by leveraging these patterns, you create powerful and sustainable brands. I love that. I think that's a really smart way to look at, you know, looking for patterns as a way to create meaning is is really interesting. I'm going to mull that one over for quite some time, I think, <laughs> and certainly take a lot more photos on my travels. Um, <laughs> thanks again for joining me on the on the podcast. I've really, really enjoyed talking with you. If people want to find out more about you, they want to connect, uh, what's the best way for them to to say hello? Yeah. First, thank you again, Andy, for having me on the show. I really appreciate this. And I really enjoyed our conversation today. I hope, I trust, but I hope uh, this is indeed very valuable to our listeners. And people can find me on LinkedIn, Emmanuel Probst. I'm also on Instagram. And that's a good way to close the loop, Andy, because earlier in the call, earlier on, on, on the show, you said... Um, you have an accent and obviously you're not from the UK. So on Instagram, <laughs> I'm at real French boy, all in one word. <laughs> so, so I think I just gave away here, um, where the accent came from in case people had not realized by now. So, <laughs> um, to be more concise on LinkedIn at Emmanuel Probst on Instagram at real French boy. And I always welcome feedback. I always welcome people to challenge me and i'd be more than happy to help our listeners out if you have any additional questions i'd be happy to address those questions in a personal fashion perfect perfect well emmanuel or should i say real french boy thanks again <laughs> and uh, i do hope that uh, at some point we'll have a chance to talk again and perhaps if you get over to to this side of the planet do look me up it'd be great to meet up for a for a coffee at some point Absolutely. I can always find an excuse. I, I still go to the UK often. I really loved my, my time in the UK and I still visit two, three times a year and I can always find an excuse to drink some PIMS. <laughs> PIMS, of course, <laughs> it's not coffee. I look forward to it very much. Thank you, Andy. <laughs>